welcome to the Wellbeing and Career World podcast. I'm delighted to be chatting with commercial airline pilot and founder of The Cockpit Method. He founded his own coaching business during lockdown in the middle of the COVID pandemic after he made redundant from his dream job. Following the collapse of a major UK airline, Paul Green decided to use his 10 years of experience in the commercial cockpit to help other business owners to manage their stress and fatigue. Our chat today will focus on well-being and how to have a plan B if you may find yourself unemployed. A very warm welcome to the podcast, Paul Green. Thank you very much for having me, Dave. It's ni- nice to see you. No, thanks very much. It's um, well, Let's get to start. We always ask this. Don't ask me why. People want to know where you are on planet Earth and what's the weather like? Oh, good question. Uh, I am just on the outskirts of Bristol, down in the southwest of the UK, um, and it is surprisingly sunny today. Um, we've had a horrible few few days of like biblical rain, um, as I think most people would expect for the UK, but it's actually brightened up today, so it's, yeah, it's good. Oh, very good. but Bristol's a nice part of uh, the country, isn't it? It is. I love Bristol. There's. It, it feels like it's that perfect place where it's not too far away from the coastline, so you can kind of get down to the coast and, and you know, be near the water. It's a nice trendy city, so there's there's enough going on. You know, it's got all the shops you would expect. And we're not too far from from London. So, you know, if, if you ever have to kind of get into the big, big city, it's it's not too too difficult. And how's how's things now? I mean, are things opening up a little bit now because of the pandemic and the vaccination program in the UK? It is, yeah. I mean, that's quite a funny question to ask at the moment because um, it, it is starting to lift, and it's been it's been so so nice. You know, we saw my in laws this weekend, which was lovely to spend some time with them. You know, we can we can hug people again, which is <laughs> you don't yes. realise how much you miss <laughs> simple things like that. Um, but unfortunately for us, on Sunday we had a, a, a phone call from my daughter's school to say they've just had a positive COVID case. Right. Um, so my daughter's isolating, poor thing. She's she's six. So we're back to homeschooling this week. So it feels like one step forward two steps back but right. it feels like we're moving in the right direction it's interesting you can imagine people listening to this podcast in years to come uh, especially different reports that are going around the world and, and how we coped and how we managed it's it's uh yeah it's an interesting time anyway people don't listen to my voice so can you tell our listeners a little bit about your background i gave a little introduction but tell us more yeah absolutely so for me being a pilot was always the dream job it was it was the thing i always wanted to do since i was a kid so um, my my grandfather used to always take me to, to the airport. I grew up in um, in Leeds in the, the north of the UK and we used to go quite regularly to watch aeroplanes take off and land. Um, we used to have Concorde come in. So that was, you know, for anyone who's too young to remember Concorde, <laughs> what, right. what an experience it is to, to see that, that, you know, thing come in and, and land. Um, and then when I was when I was a child and we used to go on holiday, it was the generation where we were allowed to go in the cockpit in flight. And it's just so exciting. You know, it was from being, you know, five or six. It was just the job I really wanted to do. Um, at school, I was told I wasn't good enough to, to pursue a career in aviation. So I actually didn't pursue it kind of straight out of school. I went into the um, entertainment industry. So I worked as an electrician um, kind of across the West End in London and, and globally. And then it was it was a bit later on in life. So it's when I was 27, decided to pursue this career, you know, kind of thought why why let people tell me I'm not good enough it's time for me to kind of take control of that apply for the flight school kind of expecting to get knocked back but they offered me a place um and I guess the rest of that bit is is kind of history um did my two years of, of flight school training for my commercial pilot's license got my first job which was based out in Munich so I had to move my entire family out to Germany um we were there for six months came back to the UK always wanted to live around Bristol um managed to get a job at Bristol airport flying there um 
And then probably about three months after coming back to Bristol, um, the airline I was flying for at the time entered administration um, and collapsed, which was really, really difficult to, you know, have this dream, want to pursue it for so long and, and kind of have it put off. And then last minute it gets taken away from you just when you you think you finally grabbed it. Um, so I, I decided to, to just kind of you know get straight back on the horse. It's something that's really important to me when you get knocked down, just try and pick yourself up as quick as possible. I uh, managed to find a, myself another job flying, which this time was for, for Flybe, um, based down in Exeter, um, even further down southwest in the UK. And a year after, I'd, I'd been working for Flybe for about a year, um, and in March 2020, they also entered administration um, due to COVID. They, they were the first kind of UK corporate casualty that collapsed because of the pandemic. So I found myself redundant again for the second time within a year. Um, and again, you know, having that dream pulled away from you is, is so difficult. Um, can, can I ask, Paul, then, how old are you now? Uh, I'm 35. Right, so you're 25. So in the space of, so you started with 27, and then you went over to Munich, brought the family over. Um, yeah. You came back to the UK. You were near Bristol. You lost your job there, then you joined Flybe, and then due to COVID. So in a in short space of time, um, you've had a lot of bumps. Yeah, turbulence. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Would you call it good bumps or good turbulence or bad turbulence? <laughs> do, do, do you think it would actually, do you think it makes you stronger? Absolutely. I think everything makes you stronger. Everything that happens to you in life, whether it's something that you regret something that you wish had never happened I think everything that happens to us in life makes us the people that we are um, I think I am much better equipped now to talk to people about resilience because I had to show resilience um, you know I'd, a lot and I know we'll get onto it later on but a lot of the stuff I talk about is taking the lessons that I learned in the cockpit and applying them to normal life and that's exactly how I dealt with my redundancy. You know, I put myself in that position of being in the cockpit and said to myself, you know, if I was a pilot and something had just happened to me in this moment, you know, life or death situation, which, you know, when, when you when you have no money in your bank, it is a life or death situation. How would I deal with that as a pilot? You know, I, I wouldn't be able to kind of overreact or stress too much. You just have to, to make good, accurate decisions straight away. And that, that really helped me to deal with both redundancies. Um, did, did you find that having a trade, you said you were an electrician there in the music industry, did, do you think that helps? Could you fall back on that in, in those times when you, when you lost your, your job in aviation? I could have done the first time, but the second time, because we, so in, in the UK, we entered um, lockdown a week after I lost my job. And then the entertainment industry suffered massively, you know, when you when you can't have audiences anymore. Um, so many of my my colleagues from that that industry, the, the friends that I built up over the 10 years that I was doing that, they're suffering just as badly right now because, you know, that world has been shut down for, you know, 14 to 16 months. So I think you can always fall back on the skills that you've developed. But, but going back to that job um, would have been impossible in that situation. And you mentioned that with regards, I mean, stresses and stuff like that. Financially, I mean, I don't know your circumstances in terms of, you know, did you get pilot loans? Uh, did you self-fund this training yourself? I mean, how how tough can it be for somebody? I mean, you mentioned the music industry as well is, is heavily affected. But as an airline pilot, because I'm aware that you have to keep your license current every year and that costs money. 
you have to keep your medical current every year and that costs money as well. So how how can you survive? I don't mean you particularly, but how can anybody survive? Do you know, it's so difficult and it's and it's it's kind of a worry I have a bit about the, the aviation industry going forward that um, the financial side of it is just becoming more and more difficult for people. So when I did my pilot's training, it cost me uh, £100,000 um, to do the two years training. And then I had to pay an additional amount of money to learn to fly the aircraft for the airline I was working for. Um, and it's become one of those things now where airlines know that that you want that job and that, that you are almost willing to do anything to chase that dream. And as a result, the financial implications are huge. So one of the things that I was always told by my by my mum growing up was as soon as you can get a house, like have a house and just have your own property because it just gives you so much stability and so much to fall back on. And when I got offered my my uh, first, well, when I got offered the, the opportunity to go start doing my pilot training, me and my wife had just bought a house and we bought a house probably about two years before I started the training. And we had a really difficult conversation about, you know, how do we fund this? You know, we, we weren't the kind of people that just had a hundred grand lying around in the bank. You know, I think there are very few people that would have that. Um, <clears throat> so we had to remortgage the house and we had to put a lot of kind of emphasis on, you know, what do we do if this doesn't work? You know, it kind of, there almost isn't an option to fail because there's yeah. so much riding on it. You just have to, deal with it um we were really lucky that we had a house in london and when we decided to sell the house in london and move to bristol we, we freed up quite a lot of equity in the house so we actually managed to to pay off the loan um for my for my training which was really lucky because we'd be in a really difficult position right now if we were still paying off my pilot's loan which i know a lot of people are doing with no guarantee of a job no kind of security um and I, and I worry that the industry is going to just devalue more and more from a financial point of view, because I already saw evidence of that with <clears throat> making pilots pay for their own training. You know, there, there are airlines out there that make pilots even pay for their own uniform, which is terrible. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that's going to get better on the other side of this pandemic. The, the interesting thing is, Paul, I mean, I don't know whether it's just a, a kind of myth or a stereotype that's out there that it seems to be that the general public think that pilots all pilots are very well paid um, and I think you touched it briefly there you know some airlines you know they, they you have to pay for your own uniform or your your anyway your bits and bobs you know yourself so if if you were Paul Green and you're going back in time now and you were to tell somebody you know who wants to become a pilot and we don't want to dash anybody's dreams on this podcast today if you want to be a pilot you be a pilot but what would you tell them or recommend to them with regards to the financial investment that you make in training compared to the financial return? I think it's, to a certain extent, it's about gauging the time you enter the industry. So the aviation industry tends to almost go on a 10-year cycle. Um, something tends to happen to the industry every 10 years that has has kind of a big impact. You know, you talk about 9-11 happened um, in 2001. Then there was the financial crash that happened around 2011, I believe it was. And then now, you know, 2020, 2021, we've got COVID. So every 10 years, the industry kind of takes this dip. Um, so I think for me, it's about having the financial security that you can ride that storm, that, yeah. that you can do what you need to do kind of in that moment and that you can protect yourself enough 
when times do get tough because it's as an industry you know all we hear all the time is that there's going to be pilot shortages in the future you know we've got an aging pilot population that are entering retirement soon but it is a boom or bust industry um it does just it peaks and it troughs and on average it takes pilots about 10 years to see a return on investment on your pilot loan so for me you know if i was to take out an actual loan it would have it would have been a 10 year term so it would have taken me 10 years to completely pay off that 100,000 pound that i invested once you through that it, it it's kind of a bit better um and the very top end of the the pilot spectrum you know pilots flying long haul for big airlines are incredibly well paid um but it's it's just lower down you've got to i think you've got to really want it in order to be able to make that investment and from a family point of view, I mean, you mentioned there uh, when you initially started your training, you know, you, you had a conversation with your wife about remortgaging the house. I mean, especially now, is it difficult then for families as well and partners during this time? Because although you know, we talk about pilots and people in the music industry and, and all these industries are hospitality and tourism that are heavily affected this moment in time. But what about, you know, the wife or, or the kids or the partner? And it must affect them badly as well, doesn't it? It really does. Yeah. I mean, one of the things I talk about a lot from an aviation point of view is, you know, I absolutely loved the job. Every single thing about that job, I I loved it, except the work-life balance. Right. Because I would be, um, you know, my, my first airline job, when we were in Munich, it was amazing. And we were just, you know, we got to do some incredible things around Germany. But then when I moved back to the UK, I was finding that, you know, on a, on a Monday morning, I'd go to Bristol Airport and I'd fly out to somewhere in Europe and I would be in that place for five days. So, you know, it could be Stockholm in Sweden and I could spend five days there or Frankfurt in Germany or, you know, um, anywhere in Europe. And then you come back on a weekend and you've almost got to pick up the pieces. Um, my wife would say it was almost like being a single parent during the week. Right. Uh, and it's, it's a really funny thing because when I talk about well-being and I talk about um, personal versus professional well-being. You know, if I was going to talk about my professional well-being during that week, it was amazing. You know, I was staying in five-star hotels with a really nice gym, with a really nice swimming pool. I didn't have to cook or clean. I was really well looked after. I got to explore some of the best places in Europe with an amazing group of people, you know, the crew that I'm with. But then the personal side of that is awful because, you know, you're missing weddings, you're missing birthdays. Uh, I missed my wife's birthday one year because I was away um, and there's nothing you can do about it. You just, you are at the mercy of your airline because if you don't want to do that job, there's somebody else waiting behind you who will happily take that position from you. Yeah. So it's, it's really tough. It's really, really tough on the family. Uh, for me, it's bearable because it's, it's the dream. It's the dream job. And I, I get the benefits of, you know, being at 30,000 feet every day, seeing these amazing sunrises. Um, and my wife doesn't get to see that. <laughs> she has to kind of deal with the backlash at home. So it is then, I mean, I remember there was, a, there was a, we used to have a laugh before about this, where they'd say that, you know, to get Christmas off or or your birthday off in the airline industry, you need to be unemployed. So it's kind of like, it's it's um, it's the only time you'll ever get a, the, the days off. But you mentioned in regards, you know, you love the job, you know, it's a dream job. It's, it's, it's what 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 is then the best part of your job? Actually, before I ask that, what's your favourite aircraft? Oh, good question. Of the aircraft I've flown, I'd say uh, the Embraer. Um, it was like a little pocket rocket. So it, right. it was so incredibly powerful. 
um, but it was so nimble. You know, you could get it into some really small airports with really small runways. Um, but at the same time, you, you know, you could play with the big boys. It, it, it could fly in and out of London Heathrow or somewhere like that. There was there was quite a, a big, big airport. Um, picking a, my kind of general favourite airline, I guess, as a, as a passenger and as um, a pilot, it would be uh, the, the Dreamliner, Boeing Dreamliner. Oh, nice. And what, why is that? Is it because it's the look of it or because of the, the flight deck or...? I think for me, it's the, the the kind of ergonomics of it are, are amazing. Everything's kind of so well thought about from a, a pilot perspective, from somebody actually sitting there and operating in terms of where everything is, how everything's located, the feel of everything. And from a passenger point of view, it's just, it's a whole new thing of, you know, the way they ventilate the cabin is is completely new. It's It's got so much more fresh air coming through it. It's meant to stop some of that kind of groggy feeling that you get as a passenger when you land and, you know, your skin feels dry and you just feel a bit horrible. Yeah. <laughs> um, kind of taking care of some of that stuff. I mean, it's never going to be perfect. Um, and really simple things like the windows are bigger. So there's so much more natural light coming into the cabin. It doesn't quite feel so artificial. Um, so, for, yeah, for me, it's just an incredibly well-designed aeroplane from every single aspect. Right. So what about, I'm sure some aviation enthusiasts will be listening to this podcast. So what is your most challenging airport you've landed in? Uh, for me, probably there's, there's some real kind of ones that you would normally expect. So we used to fly into London City quite a lot. London City is a, um, it, it's, it's what has what we call a steep approach. Yep. So um, it, it's really steep. You know, you come over the top of Canary Wharf and then you just point the nose down at the runway and <laughs> you come, you know, the passengers said they can really feel it at the back. But that's an interesting one because London City, you expect it to be a challenge. You just, you know, it's going to be a challenge. The kind of unexpected challenges for me um, was always Milan-Bergamo as an airport. Um, You always thought it was going to be a a lovely day out. We used to fly from um, Munich into Milan-Bergamo and it was was just a hop up over the Alps. But it threw so many challenges at us um, in terms of weather. You know, you could always, thunderstorms just used to appear over the Alps almost out of nowhere. And it would be the most glorious day. You'd look at the weather forecast, you'd think, oh, it's going to be, you know, such a nice, easy day out to Bergamo. We're going to get some amazing views. And then just as you start the descent to come down to land, there'd be like the most horrendous thunderstorm has just appeared. And then all of a sudden you're fighting with turbulence and, you know, you have to go around because there's there's lightning around and you can't get the aircraft too close to it. Um, I was once flying into Bergamo and we got struck by lightning from a, a storm that just kind of appeared from nowhere. So it's one of those airports where you just had to be prepared for everything <laughs> because right. you just never knew what was going to to face you when you when you eventually arrived. An exciting um, day out to Bergamo. Yes, <laughs> it was until you saw it five days in a row on your roster. <laughs> oh, give me a rest. <laughs> you're, you're exhausted after that. So what, what about yeah. then? What what was the best part? So I'm going to ask you two 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 parts of this. What's sure. the best part of the job and the worst part of the job? So the best part of the job for me was always, so I always tell this as a, as a story. So if you imagine, you know, what it's like, you wake, you wake up at three o'clock in the morning, your alarm goes off. You don't really, yeah, nobody really wants to do that. Um, the world is asleep. You know, you go out to your car, your car's all frosty and cold. And, you know, we've all been in that horrible situation. You drive to work, you know, there's nothing good on the radio because it's too early in the morning. Um, It takes forever for the car to warm up. You know, you're still cold by the time you get to the airport. You have to go through security and it's exactly the same as, 
you know, pilots get the same thing as, as passengers get. So you've got to empty every single thing out of your bag. They will ask you questions about, you know, the smallest little thing that you've got that you're, you've packed with you, if it's a tube of toothpaste or something like that. Um, you get out to the aircraft. The aircraft is exactly the same as your car. It's frosty. Um, it needs defrosting. It's cold. You need to warm it up. But then you take off. And as the aeroplane lifts off the ground, you just see the most incredible sunrise in front of you. And you look out the window and you look down below and you see all these cars on this motorway queuing to get to work. Right. And there's just something so special about that moment where all those worries that you had when you were down on the ground have just disappeared because you are in this completely different world. You know, we talk about it being a city in the sky and it is, it's just, you are part of this amazing group of people that are experiencing things that, the normal you know normal day-to-day people just don't get to see you know drinking coffee and having your breakfast at 30,000 feet with these incredible sunrises over the Alps or you know some of these cities that we fly over there's nothing like it like absolutely nothing like it in the world you're selling it very well so so the worst part then was getting up at 3 a.m is it yeah all the work-life balance the fact sure. that you know, <laughs> in order to in order to experience that I have to take five days away from my my, my children Right. Okay. Well, that, that makes perfect sense. So we'll move on then to the well-being side. So when when people hear the work, there's a lot of it out there at the moment. You know, uh, mental health, well-being. What is well-being? Good question. I think you know, it, controversially, <laughs> I was talking to someone recently, and I said, I actually, the more and more I I work in the well-being industry, the more and more I dislike the term well-being. Right. I think it's becoming a buzzword. And I think it gets used, um, I think it started to get used in the wrong way. Uh, for me, well-being is completely subjective. It's a personal thing. Um, I think it. There's, there's three elements to well-being for me. There's, there's the element of being comfortable. There's an element of being healthy and an element of being happy. And I think those three things mean completely different things to everybody. But I think you need those three things in your life in order to have well-balanced well-being. And I think, you know, I, if I go up to my bathroom right now, I've got some multivitamins sat on the side and the multivitamins say on them, it promotes general well-being. Right. What, what does that actually mean to people? You know, that for me, that is where it's really buzzwordy and yes. it, doesn't, it doesn't mean anything. So for me, well-being is about looking inside yourself, looking at what makes you comfortable, what makes you healthy and what makes you happy. And I think happiness is one of the most important parts of well-being that we seem to miss out. You know, if I, if I talk about health and, and the thing that comes to my, my mind is going to the gym all the time, you know, go to the gym for an hour every single day, five days a week. Is that going to make me happy? Probably not. So it's about having that full holistic view of what can actually make you healthy but makes you happy at the same time and for me that's playing with my children you know going to the park and running around with my children is actually so much more valuable than sitting in a gym on a treadmill which doesn't make me happy right and um, so yeah it's it, it has to has to come from within i don't think you can you can be guided with well-being people can give you advice and give you tips but it has to come from within um you ha- and you have to own it do you think sometimes, Paul, that we may have like our expectations too high and that can affect our well-being? And what I try 
mean by this is or explain it further is that and I, I bring this up a lot in podcasts is where you have the social media element of it and I understand businesses or individuals you know social media is a positive thing especially when you can reach a global audience but are we affecting our well-being possibly because we're comparing ourselves and we're having expectations which may be unrealistic yeah I think you're absolutely right I um I used to do a, a, a room in Clubhouse um, twice a week that was about well-being. And I stopped doing it because I realised what, what we were actually doing is we were creating this group of almost well-being experts. You know, the, the room was attracting people who already practice well-being. They already do their morning meditation and they do yoga and they're healthy and they're fit. And it was doing exactly what 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 you were just saying it was just putting off the people that we actually wanted to reach because people were coming into this room and we were we were all talking about you know well I you know I get up in the morning and I do my my morning routine I spend two hours you know before my children get up and that's not what people want to hear people want to hear that actually anything to do with well-being is a step in the right direction and my whole philosophy for what I want to teach and what I want to help people with is that I talk about myself being the first step on the ladder. If I can help you just take the smallest amount of time out of your day to practice something that's going to help you, it's going to improve your general well-being, then that's what you should be doing. And you should feel incredibly empowered by that. Um, but you're, you are absolutely right. The world is, it, it is too many people talking about how amazing they are at practicing all these different things and i i don't think that helps the kind of normal person what about then with the career part of it you know you spoke there regards a career work-life balance i mean are we putting too much emphasis on our career these days and not enough time on our well-being yeah i think so um i do a lot of work in the nhs explain the nhs paul who's the nhs (laughs) so the national health service uh, here in the uk so yeah, all of our medical provisions here in the UK. Um, yeah, so so I, I do a lot of work with the kind of frontline doctors and nurses and they almost wear burnout as a badge of honour. And right. it's, it's shocking. You know, you, the number of times you hear somebody saying, well, I've worked 70 hours this week. And you just think to yourself, that's not something to be proud of you know I know right now in the middle of a global pandemic that there's something incredibly admirable about these people that are putting their lives on the line in order to save other people and ultimately to help us come out the other side of lockdown but this is not a new attitude of I've worked so many hours therefore I'm I'm the hero and I I, and I I I I totally think you're right with I I think it extends beyond the NHS as well you know it, it goes well well beyond to you know, bigger companies. And I wonder whether there's almost a, a cultural element to it that that needs to shift. I know within the aviation industry, one of my very first days working, I arrived into the crew room and the captain that I was going to be flying with that day said to me, oh, what time do you call this? And I said, well, I'm five minutes early. And he said, yes, but I'm here before you. You should always be here before me. Right. And I'm quite lucky because as a, you know, I was, I was in my thirties at that point, I kind of pushed back and said, why, why do I need to be here before you? Like there are certain tasks that I need to complete and I can complete them between now and when the aircraft takes off. 
So why do I need to be here before you? And his response was, because I always, I always had to be there before the captain when I was in your position. So I would expect you to do the same. And there's a cultural thing with that, that, you know, I think in some of the bigger companies, you know, if you think about Canary Wharf in London, the big financial district, I'm almost certain there will be office atmospheres there where, you know, everybody should be in before the boss and everybody should leave after the boss, that they, they're almost not in control of their own self. I think we place far too much emphasis on time and, you know, you, you hear the saying time is money and less emphasis on productivity. You know, if I worked in a big office in London, I know that I could achieve the same amount in five hours, an intensive five hours, as I probably could in a slightly slacker 10 hours, <laughs> you know, like yeah. just because I'm in the office doesn't mean I'm achieving productivity or that I'm helping you increase profitability or anything like that. But the one thing I can guarantee is that my well-being is taking a knock if I'm just sitting around the office all day rather than achieving what I need to achieve on, on my terms. Do you think, like in your opinion, Paul, do you think, I mean, the organisations or the companies, I mean, should they're, should they're happy enough if we all work ridiculous hours? You know, the, the, I think for them, for productivity and profitability, if, as you mentioned there, like at the NHS, if, if it's a badge of honour that they're working, you know, I worked 17 hours or 70 hours, Sure, the companies would be delighted. Sure, they won't. They won't say too much. You don't want to get that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, are we setting ourselves up here for failure? Potentially, yeah. And it's interesting you you mentioned that. So my my mother-in-law is doing vaccinations at the moment for the NHS. So she's a retired nurse, and she's she's gone back into the NHS to help them with the the vaccination program. And she told me the other day that she she went off to this centre. She was meant to be working an eight-hour day, and they actually didn't need her. So she spent eight hours just stood around doing nothing and as we th we kind of thought about it and said this is you know this is terrible these are resources that we're wasting we're messing with people but what is the measurable outcome that that we look at and and what do the NHS measure in terms of success and I saw a press conference on TV with Boris Johnson and he was talking about you know, the thousands and thousands of volunteer vaccinations we have in the UK. And that's the measurable thing. Then they're, they're not measuring the number of vaccinations we're issuing in that particular situation. They're measuring the number of people that we have. They're measuring the resources. And I think that's potentially the problem, that that, that is the element that we're looking at. We're, we're not talking about productivity from a we've achieved this in this amount of time. We're talking about productivity as we have X number of people working X number of hours. Yeah. And I, and I think that's the wrong way to look at things, but I think it's ingrained, isn't it? It's culture. That's just how companies work. The, the, the interesting thing is, and maybe you might be able to answer this one. I know we didn't discuss this uh, prior to recording, but I've had uh, messages from people that have lost their jobs recently, specifically in airlines where they have been on the social media for the airline. So say, for example, they were promoting as cabin crew or pilots and they were saying how wonderful airline A was, airline B, and they're on Instagram or Facebook. And now, now they've lost their job at the airline. And now they're, they're kind of devastated because they thought they were part of the family of the company. So is it a case then that yet again, you know, don't expect anything other than when you work for a company, no matter who it is or what it is, you get your salary, you do your hours, 
and you go home and you don't expect anything else. These guys or, or professionals that go on these social medias and are dancing in the airline uniform, in the flight deck or in the cabin and promoting the company. And then they find themselves unemployed, but they can't understand why them. It's like a shock. I'm part of the family. Yeah, I totally get it. And there was there was some like serious, serious devastation when Flybe collapsed that, you know, it was allowed to get to that position where they were so cash strapped that they needed to collapse. And um, I mean, my my thing that I always say, and it, and it potentially sounds a bit ruthless, and maybe this is the the analytical pilot in me. Um, be ruthless. Be ruthless <laughs> as possible. <laughs> I think you have to think of your when you work for somebody else, you have to think of it as a transaction. Yeah. You you give them hours and they give you money. That that is the end of the transaction. You yeah. know, you have a contract. You do what your contract tells you to do. If you choose to do more than that, then that's your choice to do that. And if the company choose to recompense you in a in a slightly different way or, you know, give you slightly more, that's their choice to do that. But fundamentally, the agreement on the table is that you come to work, you do your job, and the company pays you for it. And I think getting anything more than that is a is a benefit. Yeah. Um, and and I and it's it's okay me sitting here saying that now because I was devastated when I lost both of my jobs. <laughs> you know, you think to yourself, but you know, my I knew my line manager really well. How could they not tell me that this was going to happen or that there was a potential that this airline was going to collapse? But I think when you bring it back to that analytical thing that, you know, it, the the exchange has been done. You know, you've met your obligations. They've met their obligations. And like I said, anything beyond that is a is a benefit. So it's nothing personal. It's just business. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think it's the same, though, in if in if in my life, for example, you know, so this week my daughter's off school. So I've had to cancel a couple of meetings that I had scheduled because me and my wife are trying to work out the childcare. So the times when my wife can't do the childcare when she's at work teaching, because um, she's a teacher, I have to have my daughter and I'm helping her with her work. There are, you know, I've been really lucky that the vast majority of my clients have been really good and have been really understanding, but there was one who wasn't very understanding that I'd had to cancel this session. Right. And, you know, as a business owner, and as a father, I think to myself, but but I had to do that. You know, I had no choice. That was what I had to do to protect my family. And, and I think it's exactly the same for these bigger airlines. You know, it wasn't a personal thing. I didn't go down a list and say, you know, oh, I, I'm, this person's quite difficult. I don't really enjoy sessions with this person, so I'm going to cancel that one. <laughs> and then, you know, yeah. this one I'm not going to enjoy, so I'm <laughs> going to cancel that one. It's not, it's not like that. It just, it's what had to be done in that moment for me to make the best of the situation I was in and ultimately put my daughter first. And that's, that's, I think that's what it is, you know, in, with these redundancies, like you said, it's, it's nothing personal. It's what has to be done at the end of the day. You're probably just a number to them. You know, they need to make so many redundancies. It's almost like pulling names out of a hat, isn't it? Unfortunately. Yeah. So how then, I mean, you mentioned in regards to work-life balance before. So any listeners here, are struggling. I mean, what, what suggestions or advice have you got for them to manage work-life balance? I mean, is it just too difficult at the moment? No, I think for me, um, so I, I establish non-negotiables in my life. Um, 
I have three non-negotiables every single day. So I have one non-negotiable in my business so that I'm always moving my business forward every single day. I have one non-negotiable for me, for, for me personally, and one non-negotiable for my family. So as long as I achieve those three things every single day, then I feel like my life is in balance. There will be days when the then when work takes more priority, but as long as I still do my personal non-negotiable and my family non-negotiable, then I'm still dealing with that side of the work-life balance. Um, similarly, you know, if I have to take a day off, which is my favorite thing at the moment, take a day off during the week. <laughs> <laughs> um, as long as I still move my business forward in some way on that day, even if it's just for half an hour, I feel like I'm still achieving the work side of the work-life balance. Um, so my three non-negotiables, because I can kind of tease them, can't I? Um, <laughs> my, yeah, <go> work, <laughs> my work non-negotiable is that I show up on social media in some way every day. So usually on LinkedIn, I post something that I believe is valuable for my audience. So I give my audience something every single day. Um, in my personal life, it's that I take uh, 45 minutes off for exercise, however that may be. So today that was um, in the garden with my daughter. We were playing on the trampoline and then playing football. Um, and then the family element for me is that we always have our family dinner together. So every evening at six o'clock, we sit down as a family, um, no technology, and we just we spend that that quality family time. So for me, as long as I have those three things every day, I feel like I'm much, much closer to my work life balance. Oh, they're very good. That, that's three very good suggestions. I mean, and, and I mean, it, it kind of keeps the family unit together as well, doesn't it? Which which obviously enhances the, the happiness, I suppose, as well. Absolutely. And we, if, we, if, we, if we have a day where I don't feel like I see my family, you know, if I feel like we're all really disconnected and we, it just gives us that opportunity to come together on an evening and just have an hour together where we just talk about our day. Um, it also just encourages you to, to, to do the listening side of it as well as speaking. Because um, I know for myself, you know, if my, if my wife just comes on from work and I happen to come out of the office, we're both, you know, oh, this is what I did today. This is what my day was like. You know, you just kind of... Um, spouting everything out really really quickly and you don't really listen to each other but when you're sat down eating there are natural breaks where you know you're eating and you're not talking so somebody else is talking and you're listening and it it just feels much more fluid you know much more balanced so I, I love it it's one of my favorite things is having having our sit down meal together as a family you're in the music industry prior to doing any of your flying training is it important then to have a plan b or a backup career Especially, I mean, I know you mentioned in your circumstance that both industries were or have been and still are heavily affected. But is it a good idea to have something kind of to fall back on? Yeah, definitely. Um, possibly not as a as a career necessarily, but I think understanding your skills is really important. Um, it's something that I'm noticing a lot at the moment with pilots in particular that, you know, a lot of the redundant pilots that I talk to, the thing they seem to say all the time is, but I'm just a pilot. I can't do anything else because I'm just a pilot. But to actually understand the skill set that you have in that industry, that, you know, you are an amazing decision maker. You are really good at risk management. You're amazing at communication. You're really good at managing a team. You know, there's all these skills that you have in your arsenal that businesses would be crying out to have. You know, there are so many businesses out there that would love to have a pilot skill set in their business but pilots don't really want to sell it because they almost see themselves as the job title you know i am a pilot well actually distance yourself from the job 
and actually pull in the skills. So instead of being a pilot, I am a decision maker. I'm a risk assessor. I'm a, I'm a communicator. And it just puts you, puts things in a, in a, in a different perspective. You realize the value that you've got. And it just, for me, it just makes life so much easier than going forward and, and giving something else to a, to a new job. What about then, I mean, with, with little mention down even for the cabin crew as well, because I mean, they have, you know, they're working in this metal tube going hundreds of miles an hour in high pressure environment and customer service as well, I suppose. I mean, they, there is some of the cabin crew as well that are saying, as what you've mentioned there, you know, I'm just a pilot. I'm just a cabin crew member. I'm just an engineer. But as you said correctly, they do have some wonderful skills and experience, which other other employers will find beneficial. Yeah. Um, again, in the UK, the NHS are really starting to see this and they're using cabin crew quite a lot. Um, I always say on, an, on a normal day to day running of a of a ship in aviation, the cabin crew work much harder than pilots do. Um, they have a much more difficult job because, you know, they just uh, the whole customer service side of everything on top of, you know, the safety precautions and, you know, they are the pilot's eyes and ears in the cabin. You know, they're the ones who are always reporting back to us. So the the way they can work under pressure whilst delivering this phenomenal customer service day in, day out Um there's nothing like it. I can't think of another profession where you have people's lives in your hands and you're expected to smile <laughs> while you're yeah. doing it. <laughs> you know, think, think about a doctor or a nurse. You know, if you get a grumpy doctor or a nurse, you're not going to complain that you had terrible customer service. No. <laughs> but, I mean, I was saying not that long ago, we had, we had a, a flight uh, where we had to divert because the weather was really, really bad. And the passengers, you could just hear the way they were talking to the cabin crew and complaining about it. And the cabin crew just do such an incredible job of weathering that storm and calming people down and de-escalating what's going on. And actually what was going on was we would we we had made a decision to divert the aircraft because it wasn't safe. You know, it wasn't safe to land where we were meant to land. But passengers don't always see that. And the cabin crew just do such an amazing job of of weathering that storm. So I think again, if they if they can really dig deep into those skills that they have, the way they can stay calm under pressure, the way they can keep smiling, um, the way they can de-escalate some of these situations. I mean, something like the police force would be an incredible place for cabin crew. You know, when you talk about that de-escalating situations that are getting out of hand, that's exactly what you want from a police officer. So yeah, for me, it's exactly the same. See the skills, distance it from the job and you'll realise how invaluable you are. Yeah, that's great great advice. Uh, we move on then to, you are the founder of the Cockpit Method. Uh, can you explain the reason behind the name and what services you provide? And you have a cool website as well. So you oh, can go ahead and plug it, <laughs> plug away. Yeah, so the Cockpit Method, uh, which is thecockpitmethod.com. Um, for me, it was I wanted to teach people all of these skills I developed in the cockpit. And the more I dug into it, I realized that everything we do in aviation is methodical. There's a method or a checklist for everything. So it literally is the cockpit method. It's the cockpit's way of doing things. So the services that, that we provide um, or that I provide is predominantly for corporates, but I do work one-to-one -one with entrepreneurs as well. Um, but it's all around managing stress and fatigue. So bringing out 
the way you would work in the cockpit because the vast majority of well-being strategies that that we hear um, as we kind of touched on really early in this is you know distance yourself from a stressful situation or remove stressful factors from your life and it's not always possible and it's okay for that not always to be possible you know you imagine a pilot halfway over the atlantic at 30,000 feet and you have an emergency situation you can't pull the yoga mat out and start meditating you have to you have to deal with it you have to have ways of dealing with it and i think that's the thing that people lack at the moment in their general well-being the kind of coping strategies so that's what what i've created with the cockpit method um the the main method that i work with is my um my seven minute well-being strategy and the whole philosophy behind this is when we have an emergency in the cockpit we talk about sitting on your hands so don't rush into anything don't have a knee-jerk reaction, just sit on your hands, let the adrenaline subside, and then take control of the situation and really take control of it with two hands. And I turn that into this well-being strategy that says, you know, as soon as you start to feel that things are getting out of hand, things are starting to feel a bit too uncomfortable, you know, your palms are getting sweaty, your heart rate's rising, distance yourself for seven minutes. Just, just step away from whatever it is that's causing you that stress just for seven minutes um, do something that you really love doing, but do it mindfully. So, you know, take out a book, read a book mindfully for seven minutes, go listen to some music, make yourself a drink, um, but distance yourself from, from the situation and then come back to it. You know, it's, it's not the same as completely removing stress from your life because the stress is still going to be there when you come back. But what you're doing is you're providing a mindset shift where you are much better able to deal with that situation. We've all been in that situation where we get a message on social media or we get an email that we don't really like and you just immediately want to reply to it. You know, I, I say it's being a keyboard warrior. Um, <laughs> you know, you feel stress and you feel the emotion and you just want to reply. Where if you actually set a timer on your phone for seven minutes and you, you, you remove yourself, you take yourself away from your computer and you say to yourself, I'm going to reread that message in seven minutes. But right now I'm just going to go outside or I'm going to listen to music. I can guarantee you when you come back to the computer, that email or that message won't be as bad as it was seven minutes ago because you've let the emotion go. You've let, you've let it all subside. The stress is still there. The situation is still there. It still needs to be dealt with. You haven't got rid of the situation, um, which is what the other wellbeing strategies will tell you to do, but you're just in a better position to deal with it. Um, and that's exactly how we work in the cockpit. So in terms of the services we provide, it's all built around that and it's built around my training in the, in the cockpit um, but we do a, a four hour corporate course um, where we teach your staff to deal with well-being better within the team and about allocating these small chunks of time throughout the day to support your staff better. Um, we have an e-learning version of that course. Um, I should say both courses are called um, the seven minute oxygen mask. And it all comes down, comes from the, the saying fit your own oxygen mask before helping someone else because you have to come first with well-being. You know, if you don't fit your own oxygen mask, then how can you expect to help other people? Um, especially if you think about that in the medical medical industries, you know, if you, how can you help patients if you're the one who's suffering? If you're close to burnout, the implications are massive. But if you can just take small chunks of time to give yourself that boost, give, you, give yourself the oxygen that you need, um, you're gonna be able to get through the day and ultimately you're gonna be able to, to help other people. Um, and then finally, I do one-to-ones. So I do one-hour kind of power sessions um, with people to help them develop their own seven-minute strategy and just kind of ease them into the process of, of well-being. 
so that it's not this big monster that, you know, I need to meditate every day and I need to journal and I need to eat healthily and I need to go to the gym. Let's just spend an hour together and, and kind of dive deep into what what it is that you need and how seven minutes can can change your day. And are these programs, Paul, are they available globally specific only to aviation or to any organization or corporate around the world? No, so it's any organization anywhere in the world. Everything at the moment is delivered uh, via Zoom. So yeah, we can we can deliver to absolutely anybody. Um, and I do have clients kind of all over the place. Um, I've just signed a new client on an offshore oil rig, actually, just off the coast of Canada. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, it's quite a random one. It wasn't what I would have expected. Um, but why not? You know, these, as I say, anybody can take these skills from the commercial cockpit. You are the pilot in your own life um, and you need to pilot your own well-being. So it, it applies to anybody. And, and I genuinely believe the seven minute strategy will work for anybody. I haven't found somebody that it hasn't worked for yet. Geez, that's pretty cool, especially on an oil rig. I suppose probably they need it. I don't mean to be that the guys need it, but it's generally because if they're if they're offshore for a, a period of time, um, maybe it's a good strategy to get somebody like yourself. I mean, I look at your website here in front of me at cockpitmeta.com. It's been uh, it's featured on Vodafone, uh, BBC News, Sunday Times, BBC Radio, uh, Virgin Money and Four, and some wonderful uh, uh, testimonials there as well. So, I mean, well done you and congratulations, especially during this this uh, period. What, what about then social media? I mean, where are you strutting your stuff? Are you all over it? Are you on Instagram? And I know you mentioned LinkedIn there. Yeah, so um, on my website, actually, at the very top, there's there's the buttons to, to click through. Um, but yes, you can find me on LinkedIn, I'm on Facebook, I'm on Instagram, and I'm just starting to get into Twitter as well. Right. And so, yeah. people then, if if corporations or individuals or organizations want to get in touch, they, the best way is, is via your website, is it? Yes. Yeah. So you can, you can, there's a form at the bottom of my website you can fill out on there, um, or you can email me. Um, my email address is uh, info at thecockpitmethod.com. So before we go, what words of encouragement do you have for listeners in any industry at this moment in time who have lost their job recently and are finding things very difficult? So my advice would be to, as, as we said before, to work out the skills that you have. Work out your transferable skills. Don't limit yourself by the label of your most most recent job give yourself a whole world of opportunity by looking at your skill set what makes you unique because you are incredibly valuable we are all incredibly valuable there is not one person in the world that has the same skill set that you have so really use that use that to your advantage and sell it to any employer and then um, they would be wrong not to take you well, that's great advice, Paul. It was a great chatting with you today. Um, I just want to thank again Commercial Airline Pilot and founder of the Cockpit Method, uh, Paul Green, for chatting with me today on the Wellbeing and Career World podcast. We will put all the links in for his uh, social media and his website if uh, any organisation or corporation want to get in touch with Paul in the near future. So thanks very much, Paul, for chatting with me today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me.